Welcome to Midwretched, the home of the most heartless of the heartland. Join us, Tommy and Mick, as we share the best true crime tales the Midwest has to offer. to go yeah welcome back to mid wretched welcome we are glad that you are here we're glad that we are here we are and we're excited that election day is coming up i know that this is our spooky ooky episode but there's something even possibly spookier happening if we don't all get out and vote (laughs) seriously people (laughs) please vote please Please stop us from hurtling into the actual apocalypse. Please vote. (laughs) (laughs) And on that note, Tommy has a very specific announcement and request for your votes. I do. So look, okay, I um, can rant about this. And I anyone that knows me like in real life um, has heard me rant about this every election season. But look, here's the thing. So. Uh, we at Midratchet are not going to um, endorse particular political candidates, however, vote for actual human beings. Something that I think people don't give a lot of attention to that they really, really should, especially in smaller population counties like mine, is the fact that coroners are going to be on your ballot. Now, that can sound like maybe not that big of a deal, but the fact that coroners are an elected position means that they don't have the kind of qualifications necessarily that you would assume or hope that they do. So typically in bigger urban settings, uh, there isn't a county coroner. um, And there's more of like a medical. Yes, like mixed area, like Detroit, where I grew up, like um, it's a non-issue. You usually have a team of medical examiners um, and then probably a chief medical examiner for the county or for the city or what have you. In smaller populated places like mine, even though mine is not that small, we're South Bend, Indiana, St. Joseph County, the home of Mayor Pete, you're welcome, who I used to see at Martin's and now he's too cool to go to Martin's, I think, but he has people that do that. He has people that do that now. But um, even in like a mid-sized county like mine, the coroner position is an elected position. Now, how it goes, I'm sounding very pedantic. I just really care about this. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So how it goes generally, and this kind of varies by county what the particular responsibilities are, but how they are here is pretty standard. Basically, a coroner's responsibilities are identification of bodies, kind of responsibly handling that. Um, But the most important responsibility that they have, generally speaking, is coordinating whether or not a death is further investigated. Again, that doesn't feel like something that should be a political position, but too often it ends up on ballots, and it is. So when you hit the ballot box this season, do your research about whether or not you have a county coroner up for election, because um, think about who you would want to be investigating if if something happened to you or a loved one. Who would you want to make sure was coordinating a follow-up process? Who would you want to make sure was investigating a murder as a murder and not as a suicide or an accident or what have you? So Um, For instance, in my county, the two county coroner candidates right now, one is a funeral director. The incumbent is a funeral director, so a death industry professional. The other one is a medical doctor with um, 
you know, a few decades of experience. So I think about that as a voter and I think, do I want a funeral director or a medical doctor to be the ones potentially deciding whether or not my death is investigated? I know the answer for me is a doctor, but uh, all that to say, pay attention. Who would you want responding to an officer-involved shooting and deciding whether or not that's further investigated? Who would you want to show up at a, mis a fire and deciding whether or not it was further investigated? Remains are found. Who would you want to decide when and where a search starts and stops for identification? So uh, that's not to endorse anybody specifically. It is to just make sure that we are aware that it is an elected position in a lot of areas and check the qualifications of the people running in your town. And if you don't know where or how to get that information, a couple of the websites I've always found to be really helpful is BallotReady.com and Ballotopedia. I um, love Ballotopedia. Yeah. Uh, they usually, if you type in your address, they'll bring up all of the electable positions um, and you, they'll bring up some kind of research along with those. And that's kind of what helped me fill out my ballot, especially for yeah. judges. Oh, that's so important for judges because, like, you don't, they don't exactly campaign. So, yeah, but um, some of them will give you, like, you know, what bar associations have approved of such judges or recommend judges. Mm -hmm. um, and that really helped inform my choice. Yeah. And I mean, around here, when I used to live in a much more rural county in this area, uh, Marshall County, Indiana, population like three and a half. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the there was only ever one person. The year that I voted there, there was only one person on the docket for a coroner. And they were like best buds with the sheriff, the county sheriff. And I'm like, hmm, that seems fishy. Yeah. So Might not be, yeah. but seems like it might not be but do i do i feel good about this like what are my instincts so it's like it's one of those things like it shouldn't be an elected official no most content and the most qualified person should get it but exactly if i but, uh, if i trusted elections for that to happen we'd be in a very yeah. different situation exactly so that is my minor political rant number one go vote number two research your coroners please number three research your judges too yes seriously yeah. All right. Now that we're off our soapboxes. Yes. Time for murders. Yes. I'm so excited about this. You're taking me home. I'm taking you home. And we're going to we're not only going to go home, we're going to jump into our time machine. Yes. Yes. Today we are covering the St. Aubin Street Massacre of 1929. <laughs> so we're jumping into our time machine. Okay. Into 1929. I'm into it. Now, you might ask, why am I specifying the St. Albans Street Massacre of 1929? Because there was another St. Albans Street Massacre. I'm not surprised. That is not the best neighborhood. There was a St. Albans Street Massacre that occurred in 1990. And oh. I got really sidetracked when I discovered that. And we are going <laughs> to have to cover it at a later date. <gasps> Can I do it? It'll be our parallel episode. Oh, my God. You are going to love this. There's so much legal stuff that went into it because the, Ooh, the perpetrators yes. were so young. Ooh, let me have it. Let me add it. Let me add it. Okay. All right. I'm here. All right. And we are in Detroit in the 1920s. Cool. Picture it. Booming economy. Industry. All around. Streetcars. No, can't picture it. You can't? Okay. No. Okay. Well... I'm going to give you a little history lesson. We're going to go. We're going to go back. Because okay. you know I, I love it. You know I love scene setting. I know you do. I know you do. <laughs> and I am just like a disenchanted Detroiter. And I'm like, no. 
Oh, well, let not me, really. Let me set up a scene for you. Okay. Okay, do it. So Detroit in the early 1900s was becoming a huge developmental hub. Yes. Western European immigrants as well as white farmers were moving into the area en masse. Yes. Seeking work and there were plenty of jobs to go around. January 1st, 1910 marked the opening of the Highland Park plant for Ford on Woodward and Manchester that manufactured the Model T's, but was also notable because it was the first assembly line plant. My grandmother was born in Highland Park. Really? In the 20s. Oh, well, I guess 1930. Yeah. That's going to happen a lot this episode. I'm going to be like, oh, yeah. It was the first assembly line plant, which allowed for cars to be made super quickly and super cheap, which meant that they were more affordable for the average person. Mm. and that the Ford plant became a huge employer for the area. Yes. My ancestors are grateful. The ancestors are grateful. Just a year later, in 1911, Chevrolet joined Ford and opened its first factory. Boo! Ford family all the way. (laughs) Even though I drive a Jeep. (laughs) Well, that's our next one, because in 1925, then the Chrysler factory opened. Mm. And Chrysler owns Jeep. Indeed. So anyway, so we've got our big three, right? Mm-hmm. And let's face it, love them or leave them, they built Detroit economically. Yes. It wasn't just the three of them, though. Detroit became the home of 3,000 major manufacturing plants. Between autos, auto parts, steel, ironwork, what have you, it was happening in Detroit. What also was built was the Detroit Street Railways, which everybody has forgotten about because Detroit has no mass transit whatsoever. Well, nothing functional, we should say. Let's nothing be factual functional. here. I'm yeah. sorry. Which is so ironic because they had the first municipal streetcar system. Well, so can I cut in to just give a little, little like minor just note about Detroit infrastructure? It's yes. relevant, I promise. Yes, of course. So Detroit is the city that the auto industry built, yes. right? And as such... Uh, the auto industry has become a part of the infrastructure of the city and how it's set up. So Detroit is 142 square miles of land, which is bigger than places that uh, dwarf it in population by a landslide. So like oh, yeah. comparing Chicago in land area to Detroit in land area mm-hmm. is something, Chicago is something like a fifth of the size in land oh, yeah. area. LA, uh, New York, tiny compared to Detroit. Yeah, yeah. But so Detroit being the place that the auto industry built Um, was also constructed in large part to make it necessary to have a car. So you see the highway system is incredibly um, intricate and robust and everything is a grid, but there are streets everywhere. And so it's built to be traversed by car, Mm -hmm. which meant that when the auto industry started to go and everything got kind of funky and, you know, poverty really struck the city as it has, what the city does not have in the aftermath is an infrastructure that makes a robust public transportation system something that's easy to implement. You know, somewhere like Chicago, where the city is so small in land area, mm-hmm. means that you can have that public transit be really clean, really easy, really straightforward. Somewhere like Detroit, you're talking about covering 142 square miles with public transportation. It's a totally different ballgame. But that is the auto industry's uh after effect i'm not gonna say fault but it's the after effect yeah and that's why people in detroit take the highway everywhere because everything was built to have to do that also literally the best drivers in the world are in michigan girl no we're crazy i i I don't know i 
I will take Michigan drivers any day over Ohio drivers or Illinois drivers. Yeah, Chicago drivers are something else. Oh my God, they're terrible and I hate them and I want them all to go away. Anyway, let's get back to our story, shall we? We're in Detroit. We're in this wonderful, thriving, industrial town. Yes. With just jobs aplenty. (laughs) (laughs) Those were the days. Those were the days. Um, But it's easy to see why so many immigrants in the 1910s and the 1920s were traveling to the U.S., And why Detroit specifically was such an attractive place to go. Yes. Um, In 1910, Detroit was a full 34% foreign born. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. 75% of those were of European descent. Mm -hmm. Um, And those jobs meant that some people were able to buy homes and really participate in the economy. Yes. Um, But of course... I can paint this like wonderful, like Henry Ford esque picture of what he wished the world was and what in his mind it was. Mm, <laughs> of girl. everybody has homes and cars and is white. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say <laughs> a crucial part of that <laughs> is white and Anglo and <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Anyway, we'll talk about Ford someday. Anyway, but. As we all know, anyone who has taken more than a passing his interest in labor history knows that whatever beautiful picture I just painted was not the reality for most workers. Yeah. Um, what a lot of immigrants and uh, farm workers who came to the city were met with was overcrowded tenements, really back-breaking and illness-inducing jobs, disease from the crowded conditions... And just generally really unhealthy places to live. Um, Add to that that during Prohibition, Detroit had very easy access to Canada. Yes. Which made way for rum runners to make bank. Yes. um, Which led to the rise of organized crime, the mafia, all of that good stuff. Yes. So it is in this setting that we are going to plop ourselves down. (laughs) Plop. Plop. And I get to introduce our main man today. Benny Evangeliste. Cool name. Such a cool name. He had so many cool names, actually. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. We talked about that, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't... It wasn't that he was necessarily changing his name or anything like that, but I came across so many names for him from Benedict, Benedetto, Benjamin, Benjamino. Um, I saw both Evangeliste and Evangelista. Mm. Um, I don't think it had anything to do with him necessarily like intentionally changing his name or trying to evade things, but simply that records and especially immigration and a push toward anglicizing um, Mm -hmm. was the kind of was the fashion of the time. Indeed. Luckily, he just went by Benny. So that's what we're going to call him. Cute. I'm here for it. Benny was born in Naples, Italy in 1885, grew up in a big old Italian Catholic family. Cool. Very devout from what it sounds like. Um, Not much formal education, but he was trained in the family trades of carpentry and construction, Mm. which were very helpful to have when you immigrated to the U.S. Yeah, for sure. Which he did in 1904. G traveled to Philadelphia to be with his older brother, Antonio, who was working for the railway system. Mm. Shortly after Benny came to the U.S., he began experiencing these mystical and religious visions. Yes. Yes. That Antonio felt were very un-Catholic in nature. 
Ooh, mm, mm. Uncapped. No, Catholics love a vision. <laughs> Please. Apparently not these ones. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> In 1906, Benny began writing a book that was supposedly inspired by these visions that came to him specifically between 12 a.m. and 3 a.m. Of course. Of course. Very specific times. Mm-hmm. Um, and these upset Antonio to the point that he disowned Benny. Interesting. And kind of kicked Benny out of where he was living. So Benny was forced to move from Philadelphia with his brother to York, Pennsylvania, where he continued working on the railways. Now, while working on the railways, he met a man named Aurelius Angelino, which is bar none the best name I've ever heard. That's beautiful. Beautiful. If I had kids, I would name them Aurelius Angelino. Yes. Um, I want to rename my child out. Unfortunately, Aurelius didn't love his name as much as we did, and he went by Leon, which is lame. (laughs) Anyway, we're going to keep calling him Aurelius. Yeah. Um, Aurelius was just as interested in mysticism and the, and the occult and other un-Catholic practices as Benny. And so the two made really good friends. Cool. Um, specifically, they both glommed on to theosophy mm-hmm. and began to study that pretty intensely. For anyone who is unfamiliar, theosophy is a kind of like pantheistic belief system that God, not necessarily the Christian God, but some kind of broad spirituality can connect with you directly through intuition and mystical insight through study of yes. mysticism. Is that a good yes. summary? It is. And I would say like uh, people that are like interested in or know anything about like theory behind like the chakra system, mm-hmm. this would be like what you connect with via connection to your third eye and crown chakras, like that higher, higher spirituality, the higher divine. Uh-huh. I never listen during chakra talk and yoga. Oh my gosh. I know. I'm the worst. It's useful. Even if you don't believe in chakras, it's useful. So jumping back into Aurelius and Benny. Yes. Um, Benny and Aurelius became great friends, started studying together. Benny shared his writings together. But Aurelius might have been a little bit more troubled than Benny was aware of. I couldn't find too much additional information on this event, but... Apparently, one night in 1919, Aurelius kind of snapped, attacked Hmm. his wife and two children with an axe. Oh, my God. His wife survived, but the two children did not. Holy shit. He was immediately caught and sent to a prison for the criminally insane. Wow. Yeah. So he and Benny were friends at that point? Yes, they were besties. They were besties working on the railway, like, studying together. Yeah. Wow. And after this, Benny got the fuck out of town. Yeah, I would imagine so. Yeah. Benny went immediately to Detroit, where he had another brother living. Mm, Good call, bud. Yeah, right. Um, Stayed with that brother for quite a while, but Detroit turned out to be a really good move for him. He started to study business a bit more. He built a small real estate business. In 1920, he married a woman named Santina, Santina Evangelista, which is, God, this is just full of good names. Yeah, it really is. That's so pretty. Stop just like thinking of names for you to give your children. (laughs) (laughs) I promise I'll have enough of them for you to name them all. Thank you. So Benny and Santina settled into a heavily Italian neighborhood, um, built a business in real estate. He also did some construction Again, kind of fixing up houses and things like that. He was mm. 
a 1920s flipper. That's cool. Not a flapper, but a flipper. That's really cool. Right? Yeah. Um, they settled into the house at 3587 St. Albans Street, and he became successful in a pretty short period of time. You said 1357? 3587. 3587. I'm just interested because... It's I'm, an empty lot right now. Yeah, I'm always interested in how these neighborhoods evolve. And, like, I know St. Albans Street, so I know what it's like, but... It seemed like it was a pretty thriving neighborhood when he lived there. Yeah. Yeah. It's an empty lot probably owned by the Illiches right now. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Yeah, it is an empty lot. But you can see, I don't know how much of this would have been standing up in those days, but... Um, there are a lot of churches, which doesn't surprise me because Ital if it's a heavily Italian immigrant neighborhood, it's going to be um, very Catholic. Oh, yeah. And there are a lot of churches in this neighborhood, like walkable, still standing, probably the churches that he would have attended. Like you're really. not you're not going three or four blocks without hitting a church. No, you're really not. You're really not. And it probably was even more of them then mm -hmm. than there are now. Yep. One of the prettiest ones, actually... Um, is right by there, St. Albertus. All right. So Benny and Santino, they had five kids. Um, one of them did die in infancy due to illness. Um, their surviving children were Angelina, Margaret, Jeannie, and Mario, who was just 18 months old. But although Benny had this very thriving business, this beautiful family, mm -hmm. um, he still wasn't done with his study of theosophy and the occult. Interesting. He was still having these visions. And he was still, you know, writing and talking about these mystical practices. He continued to work on his book on the occult. Um, and in 1926, he finished his book titled The Oldest History of the World as Told by Occult Science in Detroit, Michigan. What? Yeah. That is so rad. Is that, like, available? Um, I tried hard as fuck to find this book really and i did <gasps> you did it was on sale on amazon did for you buy it? two thousand three hundred and fifty four dollars and fifteen cents yeah but did you buy it though uh no because i'm gonna need a patreon from our wonderful listeners <laughs> <laughs> can that be our first like <laughs> that's our first patreon <laughs> <laughs> the first person that buys us this book gets a shout out on our podcast. <laughs> right. Oh, my gosh. That is so cool, though. Yeah, I tried to find like PDFs of it. Um, and luckily, thanks to Goodreads, I did find the first few lines. Oh, tell me them. You want to hear them? Yes. All right. Here we go. So this book is, as it says, the history of the world. Starting from before the beginning of time and in the first volume up to a thousand years before Noah. Cool, cool. There were supposed to be three additional volumes. All right. Huh. But here is our intro, our first few lines, thanks to Goodreads and my Goodreads subscription. Before the creation of God, there existed nothing but air and wind. Today we find land, men, animals, etc. Between the air and water, there were seven winds. At that time, also lived fish and serpents. When the united tempest always arose, and they never agreed so, finally decided to choose a leader who would take command of everything. After this decision was made, they formed a large coach of clouds with the strength of air and wind, which they closed well. 
After 90 days, they opened this coach, and in it, they found a phenomenon, the aspect of a human being. Hmm. I have That's no beautiful. idea. <laughs> really? Because I have no idea what any of that means. Interesting. Well, I feel like, oh, it's almost a little bit like homunculus-y, isn't it? Like, a little bit, yeah. The idea that the there's this like tiny essence of humanity hidden in some elemental force. Like that's basically what that's getting at, right? Okay, like, okay. That's really interesting. So it's This is why I need your spiritual like side and like <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, so I think it's like and it really does, like it's a very um a very, very, very ancient way of looking at like a godlike entity, really. This idea yeah. that like um, God is not like one thing that omnisciently exists, but God is everything and everywhere. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so it really feels very like homunculus to me, like the essential nugget of humanity lives in the original elements. That's okay. neat. Yeah. I think you would have visited Benny's basement a number of times. I think I probably would have too. Probably. Yeah. Uh, and remember that all of these writings were inspired by the visions and trances that he had between 12 a.m. and 3 a.m. That's cool. This book became the basis of his religious teachings. Hmm. Do you know what I found online just now, just looking at it, was that uh, it used to be available online and then it got pulled. I know. That's crazy. I know. such a bummer. And so there's a bunch of links to it that promise they're going to take you there. Mm -hmm. And none of them do. That's so sad. I want to read it so bad. (laughs) Are you going to go dig and try to find this book? Oh, 100% I am. I'm very curious about, like, if John King has a copy that's worth, like, five grand or something. Who? John King, the giant bookstore back home. Oh, ooh. Yeah. That's a good... Because they've got, like, a really cool collection of rare, very rare books that... um... So I wonder if they would have anything, like, any of his papers. He had a ton of writings, so I wonder. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. Interesting. This might be a fun road trip for us to go. Yes. Yes. All right. Anyway, but. Yeah. We're back in 1926. Yeah, we are. And remember, with his writings, we're still in this very highly Italian, highly Catholic neighborhood. Yes. Now, Benny and his family are still attending Catholic Mass. They're active members of the church. They're still friends with. Everybody in the church, including <laughs> Father Beckanui of St. Francisco's Catholic Church. Um, I see this face you're making. Do you know that church? <laughs> I think I do. Yes, I think I do. You said it was St. Francis? Uh, it says Francisco. Okay. But I'm guessing also, like, it might have just been changed to St. Francis. Uh, I'll get back to you. Okay. Anyway. So the priest at the at St. Francisco's church where the evangelist family attended described Benny as, quote, no doubt insane, hmm. but also shrewd and seemed to have quite a lot of intelligence in other matters. Interesting. He felt that it's possible that Santina was the more fanatic of the mystic than Benny. Really? Um but also claimed that she didn't have, quote, quite the same level of intelligence. Hmm. Which might have also just been some sexism. Sexist, yeah. Yeah. Who knows? There's not too much information about Santina. That's too bad. Sadly, yeah. Um, 
But what's also going on in this time is that there's also a lot of factory workers suffering mm. from a lot of illness, from cramped spaces, um, a lot of kind of hopelessness, and a lot of illness going around to children. And in addition to these kind of religious teachings that Benny would put on on Saturday and Sunday evenings, he also offered love potions, healing sessions, and psychic surgery. Interesting. Can you talk about what he meant by psychic surgery? Do you remember at all, and maybe this was just a weird interest of mine, but it had kind of a resurgence in the late 80s and early 90s where there was this phenomenon of psychic surgery where they, you would kind of like lay on a table. And of course, you know that I am the ultimate obsession with debunking. With debunking. Yes. Um, I'm, I know. I'm a fucking killjoy. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I need you to balance out my life. I'm in the ultimate Totes. killjoy. Totes. Same. Um, but psychic surgery would essentially entail like waving your hands over a person. You would kind of like bend your fingers into them, make it look as though you're removing certain things. So they would have like kind of like little cups of liver and chicken pieces and fake blood and put on these performances as though they were removing tumors and organs and whatnot from people. That's awesome. <laughs> if you've ever seen An Honest Liar, I highly recommend it. Oh, great documentary. Mm, I need to watch it. Um, but psychic surgery was essentially this kind of like mystical healing process. Yeah. Um, and this is why I think, again, me, Killjoy, not a mystic, why I think that situations like these really do take advantage of a community. Yeah. I mean, this is like, it's not, it's like the um, crazy great grandfather of Reiki. Yes. Kind of, yes. It sounds like, like energy work and that sort of thing. Yeah. And there's a really fine line, I think, between like giving people a language by which to talk about what's going on with them. And like, I think sometimes a lot of this stuff, it just provides a language, right? Like, and, and I'm really okay if that's what you're doing and you're giving people hope. And even if it's like spiritual and religious teaching, but when you're selling a healing potion mm -hmm. or a psychic surgery, then I start to think, this is a con. This is ableist mm. as fuck. Um, you're taking advantage of people. Yeah. And I think sometimes like um, people that are providing those services, it's hard to tell sometimes like mm. whether or not they believe it. You know, like I was oh, at a Super Bowl party last year and got to chatting with a Reiki practitioner who ended up finding herself at the Super Bowl party. <laughs> Weirdly <laughs> enough. Um, and she was like extremely sincere, you mm -hmm. know, so I think there can be often and I think more often than not, there is like an intense degree of sincerity there. But, but there is that that line where things are predatory and, you know, yeah. I'm always going to ask, is there an evidence base for it? Yeah. And I'm going to be like, oh, and you're going to be like, but, yeah, but. you know, you wouldn't ask that question so much if you just communicated to your crown chakra once in a while. My crown chakra is fine. His basement became not only an office to uh, offer his mystical healings, um, but also a gathering place for when he would put on his own masses. Mm. When you went inside, you would be greeted by a collection of nine papier-mâché altars 
created as the personification of the nine planets. Cool. These altars were surrounded by a central eye that represented the sun. Super cool. Do you want to see? Are there pictures? Yes. Oh, my God. Show me. All right. This is a photograph of the altars. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. That is not what I pictured at all in my head. They that were, is so cool. They were actually manufactured by a local um, company in Detroit. Really? Like, he commissioned these. They're beautiful. I mean, they're creepy, but they're gorgeous. That's another one. If you're into that kind of thing, which I am. Yeah, that's another one. Wow. This is actually one of the, I think, detectives carrying it out. Oh, really? Yeah. They're they're haunting. They really are haunting. You could imagine. So, like, that's the crazy thing is, like, but you picture, A, and knowing that neighborhood, what that house must have looked like. It must have been, like, in that neighborhood, in that time, a lot of the constructions were very, like, um, gothic. Yes. Lots of, like, turrets on the houses and and all that. So you walk into that house, then you go into this basement, and I would imagine that there is, like, this otherworldly feeling that mm-hmm. could probably take over. And then you see these altars, and it's, like... You got to be like so far. You get enter that basement. You feel like so far out of Detroit. Oh my <laughs> like, god! Right. You know, and suddenly are transported, and yeah, you kind of also wonder if it was kind of a way to like feel community with all these immigrants. Like mm-hmm. it feels like kind of a connection to like old world spirituality or what. Yeah. But, That's really interesting because I hadn't thought about it from that perspective. Yeah, I wonder because I I think that could very well be the case like a lot of these practices like they sound very like new agey but they're actually super a- ancient oh yeah and i mean i can't speak because i don't know all of that much about italian culture but so many like immigrant communities you know they had these you know traditions that have since disappeared through anglicization yes totally and this like i know that there is um like an ancient Italian like kind of brand or craft of like, for lack of a better word, witchcraft. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Stagaria. Oh, and really? okay. yeah. So I kind of wonder a little bit like if any of these practices were actually kind of a throwback to that. And I don't know the answer. I just wonder. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, because you would, I'm sure you would find like an interest in the planets and astrology and of course like, and that would like predate catholicism mm-hmm. by a mile you know so the the religious practices did seem i think from the outsider's perspective quite a bit morbid um vampires and blood were found to be kind of in his stories a lot a lot of mm-hmm. like sacrificing um and these really crude figures that again, kind of as an outsider coming into that with no history, they are spooky. Yeah. But to Benny, these were the gods that they would worship and the gods that provided healing. Benny began to charge $10 per healing session in addition to pe- to people giving their money for his regular church services. Hmm. $10 per healing session equates to nearly $300 in today's money. Whoa. So that's almost two full days of a typical factory job. That's incredible. But he seemed to have a pretty substantial following. Yeah. The thing was, nobody would admit to following him. Hmm. The whole community was very hush-hush about this. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Because nobody wants to admit to being part of this kind of weird occult movement. Yeah. But he was not the only cult game in town. 
I bet he wasn't. <laughs> there was a a neighboring quote voodoo cult. I'm saying that in quotes because yeah, yeah, problematic. Um, yes. <laughs> but a neighboring cult in a nearby predominantly black neighborhood um, that might come into play later. Interesting. Okay, but generally, kind of, it was. It's pretty segregated in terms of you had the Italian neighborhood, you had the Polish neighborhood, you had the black mm-hmm. neighborhood. So they really didn't cross paths. And it's not like they were competing for church members. So that's the setup for what we're going to jump into to the night of July 3rd, 1929. Benny had a late night meeting with a man named Umberto Tecchio. Umberto, I know, right? These names. Yeah. I love them. Umberto was there to make his final payment on a property that Benny had sold him years before. Mm-hmm. Umberto went with a friend, and reportedly, according to both of them, everything was very cordial, uneventful. They made the payment and left no spooky stuff. Okay. But they were the last two people to see the family alive. The next morning, Vincent Elias traveled to the evangelist home again to discuss a real estate deal. Elias walked into the home to immediately discover the body of Benny Evangelist in his study, beheaded, surrounded by pictures of his dead infant son. Oh, my God. Pictures of his dead infant son? Yes. How? So one thing that I will say is it was not odd in this time to take, quote, death portraits Yeah, is that what they were? Yeah, I believe that that's what they were. So it wouldn't have been odd to have pictures of an infant that had passed away. But for him to walk into a man with his head at his feet, sitting at his desk, with spread out around and in front of him, these portraits of his son. Wow. So very, very, very much so staged. Mm Mm-hmm. I guess what I was also kind of incredulous about is like, this is 1929. You wouldn't go to CVS and like run off copies of a photo. So yeah, like this person, whoever did this knew there were multiple photos where to find multiple photos. That's Mm -hmm. so interesting. Yeah. Okay. And I never saw anywhere if they had been taken from the house and moved around or anything like that. Mm. And this is the infant son that the one that had died of illness. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Got it. However, when the police came to the scene, they walked oh upstairs to the bedroom to find the bodies of his wife and four children upstairs with their skulls crushed. Jeez. Yeah. Yikes. How awful. Upon further investigation of the scene, addition to the body and the three photos of the child in its coffin, they found women's underwear with names attached Hmm. surrounding Benny. (gasps) Oh, my. Mm -hmm. Names attached in what way? Written on the underwear. uh, Women's names? Yes. Interesting. Mm -hmm. What is this case? Right? And you are as confused as the police when they came to this scene. Masterful segue, my friend. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, When the police came, the entire homicide squad came out. Unfortunately, so did large swaths of the neighborhood. Mm, uh And unfortunately, that led to terrible crime scene contamination. Yeah, of course it did. So 
where in the 1920s, there is not a ton of forensics anyway. Mm -mm. And all that was left after this contamination, when the neighborhood walked through the crime scene, the only salvageable piece of evidence were a few bloody, bloody fingerprints on the doorknob to Benny's office. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. And this was 1929. Blood typing wasn't even available until 1931. Mm. Yeah. There was no trace of a weapon in the home. Although upon later inspection, the medical examiner was able to deduce a few details. Okay. Well, initially it was purported to be an axe murder. Dr. Cle- Paul Kleba the medical examiner stated that the murder weapon was actually a sharp, heavy knife, more like a machete. Interesting. He was also able to determine that the murders occurred between 12 a.m. and 3 a.m. <gasps> the same time as Benny's visions. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Are you getting spooked? A little, and I'm in my basement, which spooks me out anyway. <laughs> so... I have a lot of questions, uh-huh. and I'm sure the police did too. Tons. And I imagine I already know the answer to this, but I'm wondering if there was enough integrity to the fingerprint for them to do anything with it. They were able to get the fingerprint off enough to be able to make comparisons, but okay. to this day, they've never found a match. Whoa, okay. Mm-hmm. So this is an unsolved mystery? This is one of the oldest unsolved cases in Detroit history. Wow. I'm sad I don't know about this. I can't believe you didn't. Yeah, I'm really shocked that I didn't. This is crazy. Yeah. Police did find at the scene that their first kind of lead were some threatening letters demanding money and signed by the Black Hand. Ooh. Do you know who the Black what Hand is? What is that? No. Okay, we're going to go in. I put that on a shelf. We're going to go into the Black Hand later. Okay. Yes. Oh, I'm so excited. It's exciting. This is getting so weird. I love this case so much. I've been sitting on this case for literally a month, just like chomping. You really have. I know. I know. (laughs) (laughs) I am so intrigued by this right now. So, again, with not much to go on, police literally just started arresting everyone. Yeah, of course they did. Um, Just... My my gut is I want to say random people, but I'm sure they didn't think that it was random. Yeah. They made an immediate arrest of Angelo DiPoli the day after the murder because they found him with a blood-covered knife. Okay. However, the only evidence that they had was that he was near the house. Mm. And neighbors came forward and said DiPoli was a common visitor at the home and he was released pretty quickly. Okay. Um, Explanation for the blood-covered knife... I don't know. Meat. Meat. I mean, yeah. You know, it's, yeah. Like back in those days, you wouldn't be getting like clean cuts of meat necessarily. So even if you were just like fixing dinner, you'd have some evidence, you know? Exactly. Like it's, yes, it's a metropolitan city, but it's a metropolitan city in 1929. Yeah. You're still yeah. slaughtering out in the back of your house in large, for a lot of people. Yeah. They canvassed the church and the community, but literally no one would even admit to knowing Benny. Wow. They all denied ever going to the church, ever seeking his services. Hmm. Although Benny had coded records that showed that he had seen hundreds of people. Yeah. 
All of his records were kept anonymous, all coded, so the police had no idea who to talk to. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, like I said, the full homicide squad came out, as well as the, quote, Italian squad. We're probably case. What does that even mean? It sounds like a really bad 80s cop drama that aged even worse. Yes, it sure does. (laughs) And apparently the Black Hand Squad came out. And what is that? I don't know if it's the same as the Italian squad or not. Okay. We're going to go into I promise. I promise. Because okay. I got so sidetracked researching the black hand. Um, the police obviously immediately jumped onto the connection between the occult practices and the murders. Their biggest clue being Benny's writings themselves. Mm. Benny, apparently in some of his writings, included kind of the picture of one character who was kind of the head antagonist of his writings, Hmm. headless from his shoulders with his head at his feet. Uh, Okay. Yeah. Several other characters in Benny's writing suffered similar kind of dismemberments Hmm. and beheadings. So that was a theme, as was kind of mutilation of children. So... When Benny was giving his services, mm-hmm. these writings were what he was discussing. Yes. Like, so people would have known about this imagery and this. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So this imagery was part of what was being discussed, apparently, because mm-hmm. again, nobody would talk about it. The Evangelist family was buried together in a family plot mm-hmm. on July 6th, 1929. Do we know what cemetery? Oh, he's in Mount Olivet. That was my guess. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, they were buried in a common plot. Um, and with no leads to go on, the police stalked the funeral service. Which is smart. Which is smart. Yeah. But uh, there were literally hundreds of people at the service. Like, mm. the Italian, or like the entire Italian neighborhood was at the service. Yeah. So they made one arrest of a man who was, quote, acting queerly with excited suspicion. Interesting. Didn't get a name on him, and he was released shortly afterward. Okay. Now we're going to get into my favorite part of this, which is bad astrology. Yes. 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 (laughs) Okay. I was waiting. On July 7th, so the day after the funeral, Detroit astrologer Clark Robinson just inserted himself into the investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, he announced that the investigation was unnecessary and that the Slayer would give himself up within a few days. Yeah, yeah, guessing he didn't. These are just a few of the findings. Do astrologers have findings? Um, they have... Sure, we can call them findings. Sure. Findings, all based on, obviously, star locations at the time of the crime. Right. He said that the killer would talk freely and be easily captured. Interesting. He said, quote, The murderer is a man of less than medium height, of dark complexion and strong, agile and wiry. His hair, his hair may have a reddish tint, and he has an egocentric personality. This can be concluded from the fact that the planet Uranus was rising in the eastern horizon in the sign of Aries. He went on to say that there was a woman at the scene because the moon was in conjunction with Venus and involved in violent aspects with Mars and Neptune. 
If she wasn't at the scene, she was at least told about it. Hmm. The motive was jealousy, because Mars and Neptune were in the sign of Leo. Interesting. Now, Benny, according to Clark Robinson, Benny could have pre- prevented the crime because Mars appears to have been the ruler of both the first division of the chart and the division known as the House of Death. He probably suspected it, but didn't care much or thought he had time to escape. And it was Benny's ability to anger others that led to his death. What do you, Interesting. What do you think? I want, I want to see the chart. I want to see the chart. I know nothing about this. <laughs> well, you know, and I don't know a ton, I'm, um, but I have like a, a ca- casual interest in astrology. Yes. yes. And I'll say that. Um, so what's interesting about that, so I wonder what they, like what that astrologer based that chart off of, like what time. So basically there, there's this idea in astrology where like anything that has a beginning has a chart. Okay. So for instance, I saw um, online the other day, somebody who had done a birth chart for the coronavirus <laughs> based on the... <laughs> Based on the time of the first known case. And that was what they used as her birth chart. And they called her a her. Um, And so that became like coronavirus's birth chart. And then um, they were able to like plot out the characteristics of, you know, of COVID. So where my understanding is that where everything is in alignment to the houses and in alignment to each other in comparison to each other, has this interplay, right? So the fact that he thought that it was somebody who was like uh, a jealous, motivated person that does speak to like Leo in something, Leo in something aggressive like Mars, um, et cetera. So all that to say, I mean, we know astrology is like... Not evident. um, I was going to say something that, you know, you look for confirmation bias, yes. right? And it's, you can find it anywhere. Like I am a, uh, my sun sign is Virgo. My rising sign is Libra. My moon sign is Leo. So what that tells us is that in my heart of hearts, I'm a Virgo and I would have all the characteristics of a Virgo. My rising sign in Libra is more like my facade to the world. And my moon in Leo is my like emotional life, which is why I'm a crazy bitch. So, you know, you've got all these things like supposedly playing with each other. Right. So I wonder if they were using all that to say, I wonder if they were using like the time of the murders. Yeah. It said that he was using the time of the murders. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, there's a lot of things that you could pull if you're looking for things to pull. Yeah, like the fact that the killer would come forward easily and this would be right. solved in no time. There's no need to investigate. Yeah, there's whatever. They'll just show up, you know. It's cool. It's cool. It's only like the longest standing unsolved crime in Detroit. Right. But a different astrologer could have seen the same chart, seen the same tendency and said, okay, it's not going to get solved fast, but he's going to blab. And somebody's going to keep a secret. Or that's what I would imagine. Okay. Okay. But... You know, it's all subjective to the interpreter, right? Well, there were several false confessions mm. um, and arrests that are kind of really even hard to parse through. Like, a lot of people wanted to take credit for the crime. Not uncommon. We see that. Yeah. 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 One man sent a note to the police, which I'm going to pseudo-translate because there were a lot of misspellings and errors here. Mm. Um, but it said, quote, 
My conscience bothers me since I killed that family of six, so I will confess and say I'm sorry. I live on London Avenue in the 5400 block, but I won't give the house number because I want thinking time. Search the houses and you will find a bloody hatchet and a suitcase. I'm ready for the worst punishment I can get. So obviously, the cops knocked on every door down that street and they got nowhere. They found no trace of a weapon. No one that could have committed the murder. Mm. Um, and if you read through like a lot of the case documents and the newspapers from that time, the detectives were disagreeing whether this was a fraud or not, or if the person chickened out. Um, right. There was a lot of handwriting analysis going on. Yeah. Um, even the handwriting analysis disagreed. Well, so also the medical examiner said that it was going to be a weapon similar to a machete. Yes. Which a hatchet would not match. Exactly. Remember that they initially thought that it was was an axe. axe And that was what it was first published to be. It was an axe murder. And that was so common at the time. Um, But again, kind of, I mean, and this is the pattern that we still see today of people that falsely confess. Right. You know, they they glom onto a detail and think that that will, you know, bring them in. Yeah. The police also tried to connect it to Benny's brother, Louis, and his father-in-law, Angelo Paparo, which, again, none of these names mean anything. They're just fucking great. Yeah. (laughs) Um, They are great. Apparently, those two were involved in the shooting of Felice Argento, um, who was apparently a black hand extortionist, Uh trying to extortion them over a $5,000 debt. Interesting. Argento apparently ambushed the two of them, and the two of them ended up killing him in a scuffle. And Louis and Felice, uh, I'm sorry, Louis and um, his father-in-law, Angelo, fled to Pontiac, Michigan for safety. They were arrested in Pontiac for being, quote, suspicious characters, because I love (laughs) cops in 1929. Yeah, totally. Um, But the Pontiac police communicated with the Detroit police and the Detroit police confirmed that they were fleeing for their lives, and the Pontiac police just let him go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that makes no sense to me, but hey, it's only No, it time. really doesn't make any sense. Okay. Um, on July 14th, the Detroit Homicide Squad brings in the Italian squad, like I said, for their knowledge on, quote, Italian affairs. So the Italian squad are a squad of police people that have a particular expertise in... In Italian? Italians. Okay. I don't. But is the squad made up of Italians? Um, their names were William Delisle and Roy Pendergrass. So no. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I know. Um, and, in te- and Inspector Fred Fromm was the lead of the homicide squad. So we're gonna get into a couple of theories. Yes. <sighs> All right. So remember Umberto? Yep. He was quickly investigated because he was found with a sharpened banana knife, which is kind of like a machete. It's kind of like a curved sure. knife. Yeah. Um, and a suspiciously clean pair of boots. Hmm. Okay. Uh, he denied any involvement, but he aroused suspicion because only a few weeks prior, he had killed his brother-in-law in a stabbing. Oh. Interesting. Okay. So he's already... He's already killed somebody. He's already violent. Yeah. Yep. Tecchio, uh, Umberto Tecchio claimed self-defense and there was no evidence as to otherwise in him killing his brother-in-law. And I love that no evidence otherwise means go for it. Means we cool. Yeah, we cool. We cool. Yeah. 
Um, there was also no evidence that he had anything to do with the murder. And, and this one I kind of have to agree with. He was there to make his final payment on a property. So I don't see how there would be like a financial motivation or any other motivation. Why murder yeah. him after he paid off the property? Right. Yeah, he was done unless he was murdering him and then going to take his money back to somehow like make away with the property. For his last payment, though, like yeah. after investing all of that money. Yeah. Logically, you would have done it earlier. Exactly. And the fingerprints did not match. So the fingerprints officially cleared him. Okay. Later in July, so near the end of the month, there was a mob of farmers that captured a man called Frank Crisinano in Howe, Indiana. Oh, yeah. that's close to here. Yeah. Yeah. Crisinano was very obviously mentally ill and hallucinating at the time of his arrest. Um, he oh claimed that he was fleeing from a gang of imaginary enemies. Mm. Or that's what the doctors said. Yeah. He was questioned in connection to the murders, but his answers were nonsense. Like mm. that very kind of schizophrenic word salad. Yeah. And he was let go. Interesting. Okay. Um, so with no leads, the police offered $1,000, hoping that maybe somebody from the community would finally come forward. But still nobody did. And after a year of investigation, the trail went cold. Wow. And the trail is still cold to this day. So what is the black hand? So we're going to go into our three main theories about what okay. happened. Okay. I think I left the black hand at the end because it's my favorite theory. Ah. <laughs> so theory one is that it was a discontented cult member or client. Yeah. Now, this one really makes sense to me. To I was just going to say, like, yeah, that that totally parses. I mean, I haven't heard the details yet, but yeah. it parses. There's not a ton of detail. There's right. just theory. But remember that Benny was selling love potions and healing potions and all of these yeah. promises of, like, we're going to make your life better and we're going to make you healthy and we're going to find you the love of your life and your family and blah, blah, blah. So the question is, did someone seek revenge after these promises never came to fruition? Yeah. None of the community, none of his patrons ever said anything. Was it one more? Multiple? Do we know if he talked about in his services the death of his son? We don't know. That just feels like such a personal detail to I me. I like, know. That just seems like, that seems like a big, honestly, it seems like a big fuck you. Like this was somebody who was really, really, really angry mm -hmm. and somebody who wanted to like, kick him where it hurt you know mm -hmm. so i just wonder like if that was like a public part of his proselytizing or if it was something that you would have to have a more of an insider knowledge to know yeah i don't that's the part that gets me it's the the pictures of his son and the women's underwear that yeah. seems so odd because and whose been, names were on the underwear i don't know it wasn't published anywhere and yeah, the fact that it had to be personal. Like, Benny was obviously the main target, but it had to be so personal that he would take the lives of all the children, too. Yeah, and so my other... So he died from something awful, and then it ended in decapitation. Mm -hmm. that, that takes time, especially if you're doing that with something like a machete yeah. or something that's, like, not made to do that. Mm -hmm. So that person did not take the same time. Yes. With the wife and kids. Mm -hmm. 
And that's interesting too. Like it was still something incredibly violent, which is still very like up close and personal, Mm -hmm. you know? It also makes me wonder if it could have ever been multiple people. Yeah. It's a lot of setup and that's a lot to do without, um, being interrupted. Yeah. Which gets me into theory number two, that it was a murder by a competing cult. That was my other question. Yeah. Yeah. So I also lied. I said I had three theories. There are five. Oh my gosh. (laughs) You crazy bitch. You're going to love these theories though. Um, I'm so ready for this. So theory two is that it was a murder by a competing cult. Okay. Now in 1932, so we're three years after the St. Aubin Mm -hmm. murders, Robert Harris was arrested for the ritualistic murder of James Smith. Smith was found with a fractured skull and a knife to the heart. According to Robert Harris, the victim was mounted on an altar in Harris's home with his arms outstretched toward the ceiling just moments before the clock struck midnight. Oh. Harris got the knife out of the drawer and plunged it into Smith's heart, then fractured his skull with a car axle. Jeez. That's brutal. He stated that he killed Smith because Smith was an unbeliever and that Harris's gods demanded a human sacrifice. Now, this was our apparent, quote, voodoo cult, but... You're going to fucking lose it. Yeah. Harris said his church's name was the Order of Islam. Fuck. Upon his arrest, Harris confessed to the Evangelist family murder. However, upon investigation, the prince did not match, and Harris wasn't even likely in the area at the time of the murder. Interesting. Now, this got me into a whole nother rabbit hole. Yeah. So now I go into, okay, what was the Order of Islam in Detroit in 1932? Yes, please tell me. So during the investigation of the murder, they obviously were trying to interview other, quote, cult members. Mm-hmm. Um, because the Order of Islam to these, you know, white cops sounded very culty. Yeah. They interviewed a man from the church named Ugan Ali who said, quote, Harris had no standing in the order and was not regarded as a leader. Many people avoided him because of the wild things he sometimes said. Interesting. Upon further investigation, because Ugan Ali was one of the only people in the church to really kind of cooperate with the police and be like, no, this is what we do. Yeah. It was simply a Muslim church. Okay. And Harris was just out in his own world. (sighs) Oh, I have a headache now. I know. I know this. Like I said, I went down so many rabbit holes with this because yeah. like, I was like, I can't leave this hanging. No, that one cuts deep. That cuts deep. Yeah. <sighs> All right. So now we're going to go into the black hand theory. OK, thank God. Please. <laughs> <laughs> I know I promised this another. Yeah, I'm like losing it over here. Another rabbit hole. So remember that the Black Hand was suspected after the police found threatening notes demanding money, signed the Black Hand, and signed or else, which sounds very childish to me. It does, yeah. And that his brother and his brother's father-in-law were apparently on the run from the Black Hand as well. Right. All right. So who are the Black Hand? Please tell me who the Black Hand is. (laughs) And I, I could not remember where I had heard of them from, and I think it was from Peaky Blinders. I think they were mentioned in an episode of Peaky Blinders, which would have been the right timeline. Yeah, it would. 
So the Black Hand refers to a specific type of extortion with, with roots in southern Italy, Naples and Sicily specifically. Ah, birthplace of Benny. Okay. Exactly. So a mafia member or a member of the Black Hand would send a letter to the victim threatening bodily harm, kidnapping, arson, or murder for payment. The letter was always decorated with various symbols such as a smoking gun, a hangman's noose, a knife, a skull, etc. And finally, it would be signed with a colored-in doodle of a hand. Interesting. By 1900, the Black Hand operations were firmly established in Italian-American communities of major cities, including New York, Philadelphia, Chicago, New Orleans, Scranton, San Francisco, and Detroit. Scranton? I know, Scranton? Major <laughs> okay. metropolitan areas. <laughs> okay, cool, cool. I mean... No offense, Scranton. No hate, I was just Scranton. surprised. You know, it's, yeah. you stand out in that group. You do. You do. You're unique. You're a unique beast. <sighs> Although more successful immigrants were usually targeted, possibly as many as 90% of Italian-Americans and workmen in New York and other communities were threatened with extortion by this group. That is so interesting. So they're from where Benny was from. Mm-hmm. He was pulling in money. A lot of money. I mean, he was he was successful. Yeah, he was pulling in a lot of money. And I guess, so part of what I'm wondering is like, I wonder if the Black Hand would have had a vested interest in preserving the image of Italian immigrants. Like, mm-hmm. if people were caught like going to occult practices and doing these things, it would further stereotypes that were already harmful at the time so I, I wonder if benny could have been seen as like an enemy of the cause in a way or like someone that would have been fueling discriminatory practices interesting take i interesting take that you're going there so for what it's worth that summary of the black hand came from a website called chicagocop.com cool now what do academic researchers have to say about the black hand something totally different that it's mostly anti-immigrant propaganda Ah. <laughs> okay. Well. In uh, so this is God, kind of I'm good. This is kind of a summary from uh, a couple of writings including The Black Hand Myth by Gaetano D'Amato and The Black Hand A Study in Moral Panic by Robert Lombardo. Hold on, Murder Beagle just made his appearance. Hi Murder Beagle. Murder Beagle. The Black Hand apparently did exist in small pockets, especially in Italy. But like most gangs, it started as an effort to protect communities. Mm-hmm. And when immigrant communities started coming to the U.S., the Black Hand did expand more as a traditional, from that period, protection gang from otherwise apathetic and kind of biased policing that would harass and fail to protect these immigrant communities. They were never a huge criminal syndicate that they tried to kind of portray them as. And really, they existed to protect their own interest. Interesting. Okay. Not only that, but by 1929, these small groups that were lumped together as the Black Hand were kind of on the outs as more organized mafia moved in during the Prohibition era. Okay. So So even if they were just out of fashion at that point or out of practice. Yeah. Which leads me to wonder if the note was fake yeah whether it was faked by somebody in the community whether it was Mm. faked by his brother whether the police planted it there i don't know but it feels like such a red herring yeah is that the last theory or is there more oh no there's more okay 
Do you remember? I have a theory now too, but okay. I want to hear your theory after these two. Okay. All right. Do you remember our old friend Aurelius? I do. Of course I do. Who could forget Aurelius? Who could forget Aurelius? Apparently, Aurelius escaped from the asylum in 1926. That was my question. Did he get out? Yeah. Not only that, but apparently one of the bloody fingerprints found at the scene of Aurelius's family massacre matched Benny's. What? So did Aurelius escape, track down Benny, and then disappear into the darkness? Because he was Whoa. never heard from again after he escaped. Whoa. So if, if Benny was at Aurelius's family massacre, is the thought that he helped or that he did it and Aurelius was set up for it? I've heard both arguments. Interesting. To me, what we were talking about with it being very personal... Yeah. That his children were involved. Oh, it, it's so hard. There's, interesting. there's not a ton of evidence for it, and it would require a huge leap of faith. But. But it parses. Like, it still, it does make sense. It mm-hmm. makes great sense. Mm-hmm. It passes the smell test. It does. Yeah, it totally does. I like that theory a lot. Yeah. Now, the last theory is, did Benny predict his own death? And was this just an occult ritual? Mm. His writings in his Bible apparently foresaw scenes similar to this. Like we said, I don't necessarily believe this one. But again, it's one of those that you can't. It's too fascinating to not mention. Tell me more. There's not much more about it. His his writings apparently foresaw similar scenes. Okay. Um, his entire family was murdered, not just him. And I can't see this being some kind of setup. I don't know. I don't know. Mm. <sighs> Interesting. So, so what what do you think? What's your thought? I am so attracted to the Aurelius theory. Yeah. I this was not a random act. No, 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 no. It's too personal, it's too staged, it's It's too brutal. Yeah. What about you? What do you think? Well, so my first take is like, same thing. It's brutal. It's personal. It's incredibly gory. Mm -hmm. And it would take a lot of wherewithal to kill. And one of the kids was 18 months old. So we're talking about a baby. Right. That takes a... That takes, to me, either somebody who is so just, like, lit up by what Benny had to say or what Benny was practicing that, to me, it's everything about that scene smacks of revenge. Yeah. Yeah. That tells me, like, and it's just my kind of hot take, but it sounds to me like somebody was coming in to taunt Mm -hmm. and to avenge something and the pictures with the sun to me that sounds like like i said before it sounds like a big fuck you like i want to make you hurt i want to you know i want to really damage you you know mm-hmm. and so my my original take kind of as we were talking was the competing cult theory yeah that it was somebody who would have wanted to use benny's own ideas and practices against him okay yeah And so that makes me wonder, like, what would Aurelius have known about 
that imagery and those practices. Because mm-hmm. I think to set it up like that, it would require that you know the imagery and the practices. And if that was part of their conversations beforehand, then that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But if it wasn't, then it doesn't. And I feel like if Aurelius was in Detroit and like chilling and, you know, at Benny's church, he would have known, would have known about yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of team warring cult or team vengeance. You know, at the panties, too, I think that's a red herring for a sexual motivation. Yeah. I, it doesn't really make sense. It doesn't add up with all of the rest that's there. No. It's the pictures of the sun that is sticking to my head. I, as you are saying that, I'm kind of curious if someone in the community, maybe even someone in the church, did this to kind of scare people, not necessarily mm-hmm. just the evangelists. Yeah. But to be like, this is, again, uncatholic. This is. It's just, it's a lot to go through if you don't have something personal against him as a human being. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like that's what makes me wonder, man, that is crazy. Yeah. Is that not the craziest story you've ever seen? It's super weird. And I'm also like, I'm impressed that they were using the fingerprint so much. Mm Mm-hmm. And knowing that that was going to be like evidence that would this would hinge on. And that was all they had to go on. Yeah. And I'm glad that they really hung on to it. But wow. I would imagine that as people were like people on the list or known suspects or whatever, if people were arrested for something else and or whatever, that they would have looked at those prints again. And of course, you're not going to like run it through Sevis in 1939. But you know, you do wonder like how much continual investigation was going on too. Yeah, I know, because what time would the cops have had to continue to investigate this? And Right. You yeah. know, I it feels as though after so long with nothing to go on, it what do you feels. do? Yeah, what do you do? And at this point it's been ninety one years. Wow. Ninety one years. That's crazy. The home uh, at St. Aubin has since been demolished. Yeah. But the myth still stands that the land is haunted. Oh, I'm sure it is. People claim that there is a headless apparition. And Ooh, we're going. We're going. We're going. And the sounds of the screams of children. Oh, we're going. We're going. So this is our, this is our first haunt case. Yes. I mean, going? I talked about haunting before, but yes. this is, yeah, we're going. Next time I go home, you're coming with me. Okay. And we're going to leave my baby with my mom and we're going to go check this out. You don't want to take your kids. (laughs) I'm going to wait until her third birthday (laughs) in February before she goes on her first ghost hunt. That's that's my first thought, I would say. Uh, There is a, I did not watch it because it looked terrible. There's a film called The Ghosts of St. Aubin and it looked god awful. I did not watch it. Oh, we're watching it. Yeah. We're watching it. Oh, Oh, I'll watch it with you. Just like, yeah. Okay. Oh, man. Come back over. Wow. You come up here. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I am mystified. This is the best Halloween spooktacular. Thank you. I could have imagined. Good job. So those are our spookies and astrologers and (laughs) weird red hand stuff. Yeah. Black hands. Black hands and cults. I love it. And we're going to post, don't worry, we are posting pictures of the altars. Oh, I can't, I, on the seeing those was so cool. So listeners, go look at those. They're amazing. Yeah. 
let us know what yeah. you think too. Let it, we want to yeah. know any, any extra theories that you have. Seriously, theories, emoji reactions, whatever you got, we want to know it. Because <laughs> I, I mean, my face this entire time was like crazy. Yes. So sad story. Sad story. Really tragic. Yeah. Really interesting. I wish there were books about that. I mean, I'm sure there's like some books out there, but. There are. Um, I don't have them on my list here, but I'm sure that you can find some. I will find them. Yeah. We love you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Yeah, we really appreciate it. And it's just so cool to get to talk about these things and then have people actually out there listening to it. Yeah, like we would be doing this anyway, but now <laughs> it's way cooler because we have other friends. I was going to say, normally it'd just be me and Tommy talking to each other and yeah. our partners like rolling their eyes and I gave your partner nightmares. So. <laughs> yeah, you really did. So and like, sorry. you know, it's worked out well for us so far, but it's cool to broaden our circle. Yeah. Finally. Yeah. Anyway, we love you guys. I'm making hand hearts. You can't tell. Yes, me too. Hand hearts, hand hearts. All right. Should we sign off? Yeah. What else we want to say? Make sure uh, follow us and check us out on the socials. Talk to us. Engage with us. If you like us, leave us positive reviews on iTunes. Uh, We hope you enjoyed the spooktacular. Spooktacular. Spooky. All right. Be nice. Eat cheese. We love you. I almost forgot my side. Okay. <laughs> it's just eat cheese. It's just eat cheese. I don't know why I have to overthink it.